Welcome back to Writing the Rapids. I'm your host, Joe Blackie. This is the show where writers tell me to talk to writers. The way that it works is people who have been on the show before tell me who they would like to hear on the show in the future. I pick one of those people and they come on the show and talk to me about writing like it's a capital A art. After a hour-long conversation or so, they read me a piece or pieces of writing that they have brought to share with me and all of you. And everybody goes home happy and full of the love and light of literature. If you want to support the show, you can at patreon.com WTR. For just a measly dollar a month, you get the show about a week and a half, two weeks earlier than people who aren't giving me money. And that money goes to things like buying the books of the people who have been on the show, supporting their presses, hopefully in the future paying them for their time and their writing. And the ultimate goal is to have this more than once a month. Once a week, twice a week, every day. It's all there at patreon.com slash WTR. This month on the show we have Lisa Cantorell. She's the editor-in-chief of Clash Books. She hosts her own writing podcast, Get Lit with Lisa, a podcast where she talks to cool-ass writers. She's the author of Cartoons in the Suicide Forest and Trash Panda, and the editor of Tragedy Queens, stories inspired by Lana Del Rey and Sylvia Plath. You can find her spending way too much time on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lisa Cantoro. Now, without further ado, let's get into the show. I guess let's start with Tragedy Queens. That's the one I've read most recently. And that oh. one, um, you edited, and seems like you had the idea for it and, and just put out the call there and made it happen. Um, one of the things that I found really, really interesting, and it hit me after reading The Blacklist, was, um, or I find, found The Blacklist very interesting because it's sort of like the female power fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um and it sort of like hit me that like oh now i like now i really kind of viscerally understand what people are talking about when they talk about like male power fantasy in media like video games or movies or something like that where it's like it's a story about a woman who is beautiful enough to have people take pictures of her and give her money for it and she's also badass enough to be an assassin <laughs> um i thought that was um a really great way to start the collection yeah, stories. we felt like it was, uh, you know, kind of thought of the, the anthology as like an album. And that was like the, the you know, good rocking intro to just get it all rolling. Uh, it has great pacing, really interesting character. Something that intrigued me about it was the author, Catherine Louise, who's an amazing writer. She is, she is a model and she's worked for years. She's a photographer as well, so... Um, this is definitely drawing from uh, her personal life experience and it was just a great way to see uh, a character taking her power back because there's just I think when you are a female model especially uh, a lot of your your existence is kind of defined by the male gaze and especially like the men are photographers and everything like they're you know, they're the ones in control, or they, they think they're in control. 
of your, of your image and if, you know they don't like how you look they're not gonna they're gonna make you look how they want you to look and um, so it, it was a really cool way to take the power back in all kinds of ways from like you know and that's what I want in general with the anthology is like these are stories for the most part from female perspectives mm-hmm yeah know? I think there's only one that has like a male narrator protagonist um, yeah. That I can remember. And most of them are written by women too, which I liked. <laughs> I, I like the. I've only been recently getting more anthologies, and I really like the power of anthology to like open up a world. I recently got an anthology of like Native American poets. And like, I don't know any Native American poets besides Sherman Alexi because everybody knows Sherman Alexi and it's, mm-hmm. had to study him in college. And it's like great. Like now I have a really thick baseline to go off of and tragedy queen sort of does the same thing where it's here's a bunch of writers i think only one name i recognized um and i'm horribly like underread when it comes to indie lit but there's only like one name that i recognized and the rest i didn't know so now i have 22 other names to go explore yeah it's like a mixtape and you get to see Mm -hmm. like what artists you dig and you can check out their stuff Who, which was the one you recognized um gabino oh okay yeah cool. um Dean. oh he's actually uh so we're doing uh the next anthology we have come the clash books has coming out is a biggie inspired anthology oh cool um it's called gimme the loot uh stories inspired by the notorious big awesome. and uh gabino is the editor oh cool yeah, um, the same person who suggested I talk to you for this, his name was on that list too. So that's how I know uh, of him. But otherwise, it would have been it would have been twenty three new names. Um, have you seen Neon Demon? Um, yeah, yeah, I saw it actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as you were talking about the blacklist, that's what that's the image that came to my mind. That scene where she's uh, the guy's like painting her gold, and his he like puts the gold paint or gold leaf or whatever on his hand and the way that he like swooshes it up her neck to get the look is very sort of like very strange like overly aggressive for the way that the paint splatters yeah i feel like that movie i feel like the uh the the moment where what is what was it there was a, a panther or something in in her room yeah, something like that. Some big jungle cat. I feel like that that moment is the heart of the movie. And and I feel like a lot of the themes in the movie deal with primalness mm-hmm. uh, in all kinds of ways. And and I think like the main character, she seems so, you know, she she's she doesn't know what's going on. She's like a babe in the woods, you know, all these people look at her and they're like, Oh, I can totally like have my way with her or mold her into whatever and she ends up finding an inner strength that she didn't know she had. And uh, it's kind of like the spirit of the the panther is is uh, waking up inside her. Mm-hmm. In this concrete, you know, L.A. jungle of, you know, models. And it's, 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 it's a weird world because it's all surface. But mm-hmm. the ant still exists under that glossy surface. And I think that's what makes the movie compelling i think if the movie just had surface and it wasn't there wasn't this beast heart inside it 
it would just be flat and soulless. For sure. Well, and then the way that it ends, you know, yeah. her her sort of primalness doesn't yeah. end up being enough. That ending is so fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a it's a rough ending. Have you seen any of other his other films, Drive or Only God Forgives or anything like that? Uh, I don't think so. What are, what are his other movies? He did he did Drive. He did Only God Forgives. He did um, the Pusher movies and a couple other ones that were like really bad that even he hates. I don't no, I don't think I actually have. Okay, yeah, a lot of his his movies, Drive and Only God Forgives specifically, are sort of that same thing where it's quiet, 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 and then the ending is bigger. And then it just sort of like leaves you off. Oh, he did um he did a movie called Valhalla Rising, which is Oh cool. Like this uh like a Viking movie done by a indie art director. And it's got Mads Mickelson and he doesn't speak throughout the entire film. And there's a large portion in the middle where it's orange and it's just a bunch of people on a boat. And they're just like sitting on a boat and being like miserable on this little Viking ship. That sounds <clears throat> Um, and then there's cartoons in the suicide forest, which is your writing. Um, one of the things I read in an interview you did with, uh, Nadia of, of Moonchild magazine, but I think it was in Luna Luna, um, where you were talking about bizarro fiction and I read cartoons in the suicide forest before I read this quote. Uh, but the quote really solidified everything for me. You said, The key to bizarro fiction is high concept. You take an idea that seems completely out there and unbelievable, and then you have to make it work. When you write a bizarro book, you are basically designing your own religion. The world follows its own rules of causality, but still follows the rules of character development and plot arcs. And good work on that, because for the longest time, I was like trying to wrap my head around exactly what bizarro is. I got all the bizarro starter packs, and I've read couple books from lazy fascist and um had the line that somebody said about like it's an anime directed by david lynch and very specific that's he, very really specific yeah. the issue with sorrow is like everybody and like religion everybody has their own idea of what it is mm -hmm. you know i mean you talk to one person about you're like what's god and they're like well you know he's the person he's a you know, this deity that literally looks like a human man and he's going to punish you if you're bad. And then you ask somebody else and it's like, oh, it's just the Gaia energy of the universe. Like, you know, everybody has a different idea, you know, or the whole metaphor of the elephant and people blindfolded and you ask them what's an elephant and they're each touching a different part and they're each describing a different thing. Like Bizarro is a lot like that because it's kind of um, everybody kind of goes about it in a different way. Like the, I mean the, uh, you know the first, the the main writer of the bizarre genre is Carlton Mellick the mm third, -hmm. and um, you know that's where that basic premise, like everything I'm saying, like that's where that comes from. Where it's like you you're taking, so this is like the main gospel, I guess. What I was saying is like you take a, a crazy high concept and you make it work, and um, you you know what basically what i said you know but for other people it's kind of it depends you know some people like more you know my stuff is actually not high concept at all i never did any high concept stuff i tried but i i'm not just i'm just not of that 
I'm just not wired like that. I came up with cool concepts, I think, but not like high, high concepts. Like I would say probably one of the best high concept books that um, the bizarro genre came up with was Jeff Burke's Shatner Quake. And that book went viral, I believe. It, it did extremely well. It was a breakout hit. Hmm. And premise of that is that uh, I, I haven't actually read it. I feel bad because mm-hmm. I published it now. <laughs> but um, uh, the premise is that there, there's a, it's a comic con, and like all the different characters that William Shatner played, like they all like fight each other, something like that. Um, and there's, I think there's like alternate realities, like different. So it's just a really cool concept that. If you're a Trekkie, if you're like a fan of any of his other, like you're going to be into it and it's referencing pop culture. And that's another thing you do see coming up a lot in Bizarro is pop culture um, referencing. And I, that really spoke to me because I, I'm really into like pop music and movies and, um, you know, some other people are more into manga and video games and they kind of draw from those. But it's very much a product of like Gen X. Um, you know, it's very much coming out of like kids that grew up in the eighties and were teenagers in the nineties, you know, it's very much a Gen X kind of, uh, genre, I would say. Mm. Yeah. I, I haven't thought about it. And from the Gen X perspective, I have this weird feeling that like everybody in indie lit is my age. Uh, and maybe it's like an inferiority thing or it's like, everybody's got like 20 books, especially bizarro people. They have like 20 books they have like four forthcoming books from like every bizarro publisher and they're all 26 like me and it turns out they're not all 26 like me which makes me feel a little bit better but like they're 30 they're like in late like i'm i'm in my mid 30s ish uh yeah i'm i'm like i was born like right on the millennial cusp mm-hmm. like 1981 like literally on the millennial cusp and I, I actually connect a lot more to millennials and the millennial culture hmm. um, in what ways I mean like you can see with my poetry collection the trash panda thing like um, you know I, I really liked Altlet but I, I came to it it was already like over by the time I discovered it um, but I like the style and I saw some of the people online and I saw how they like posted and like, I just love the whole energy of it, the whole casualness of it, um, the naturalness of it, the, I, I just, it was, I just found it really charming and it spoke to me. And, um, so when I wrote, worked on the, got inspired for the trash panda collection, it really was um a combination of that of like hanging out a lot on tumblr and like looking at emo girl posts and um uh and uh becoming friends with people like brandon deal and brian allen alice and um i showed brandon deal my first poems and he was just like suit he loved he thought they were so funny and and he really enjoyed them and that just made me happy. I wanted to keep like creating that joy. So I kept going. Like if, if he hadn't been there to be excited about it and just give me that, um, feeling that I was making somebody laugh, I probably wouldn't have continued, but because he was so enthusiastic about it, um, 
that made me happy. And I, I, you know, I wanted to, I, I wanted people to have fun with those poems. I, I do feel like that is the most, one of the more successful things about alt lit. And it's, it's a shame that the people that I, I clung to from the alt lit thing ended up being not great people. Um, <laughs> your, your Steve Rogan bucks and, and, and whoever else. And, um, but that's, I like that way of thinking about it. Um, but it's still like, it's still changed. I think it's still changed. Like, it, I think it's dumb when people are like, oh, this is dead. That like, oh, sure. you know, it's once something exists, once, once culture is, is, is once, once art is disseminated into culture, into media culture and culture culture, it changes it forever. It mm -hmm. doesn't, it's like a you know toxic fumes in the atmosphere except not bad but like it changes it forever it's like good toxic fumes yeah uh i'm interested to see or maybe it's already happening and i just don't know like what the next sort of title is gonna be placed on a certain style of writing in yeah. the next coming years um because it seems like we're still kind of skittish now uh, to, like, call anything anything. I mean, I think it's stupid to call anything anything. I, I think that's why... That's part of why Outlet is cool. I, I think, like, you know, like, books like Infinite Jest, like, I would say that's, like, one of the first Outlet books, in mm. a way, because it's... it's uh, It defies genre. It, it's part essay, part fiction, part stream of consciousness you know it's just like it, it it refuses to categorize itself it refuses to let the reader categorize it it just does not it it everybody is always trying to fit into a box so that people can recognize what it what that thing is and infinite jest is just like completely t shredding all the boxes and it's just like okay take me as i am like i'm gonna be this is all of me if you can't handle all of me then I don't care. I'm going to write this fucking huge ass book. That's going to take you a million years to get through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and bizarro is kind of like that too. And that it's genre defying. Like there's a, there's a great quote by, uh, there's a great, uh, Brian Keen once said, uh, that, uh, bizarro writers are the genre fuckers. Mm -hmm. So that's like, that's kind of where I think like clash books, I mean, we've had a lot of sources for inspiration in our publishing company, but I think, um, and definitely having our roots, like, I mean, we met because of BizarroCon, like, um, we were excited by the idea of, of genre defying and that you can just meld things together. And, and I started to notice that things are just a lot cooler when you mix them up. So, like, with my collection, like, what I like is, like, I really like fairy tales. I really like surrealism, and I like horror movies, and um, I I'm, I love poetry. So it's like it's a weird blend of all this stuff. So that was my version of genre fucking or genre melding. What story did you like in there? Um, I really liked Siberian Honeymoon. That was oh, cool. fun. Eva, 
Eve of Oz was really good too. That's the one I had the most fun writing of all my uh, any story I've written. Oh yeah, I remember reading that in the acknowledgments or whatever at the end. I wrote fast. Yeah. Fast. I wrote. I forget how long, but it was it was fast. It was the fastest story I've written of that length. I'm I'm similar in that the stuff that I write the fastest is generally the stuff that I have the most fun with uh, during and after. I yeah. Hate, I hate laboring. What's your editing process like? Um, uh, My editing process? I mean, I... I'm trying to think. Like, for those stories, a lot of times I would write the first third then leave it then the middle then leave it then the then the ending and then uh you know after letting it sit for like a week or a month or whatever like then go back to it and see everything that's wrong with it but it's like, it's like hard to see it when it's like but i am one of those people that does like like whatever i wrote the previous day i'll go back and do a line edit mm. okay uh, I'm really meticulous about lines. Like I can't, I can't stand even writing a writing a typo. Like if I, I, I immediately fix it, and um, uh, yeah, I'll do line edits like the next day to smooth out sentences. I'll read it, I'll read it out loud, and do a line edit. That's basically my editing process. Because yeah. I can only tell if it's flowing when I read it out loud. Sure. I agree. I think that's a good way of doing it. Do you, what do you use to write? Are you just into Word or do you have like Scrivener or anything like that? Uh, I mean, I write by hand a lot. Okay. I write in notebooks with, uh, I used to love, in high school, I used to love fountain pens. I had, I had fountain pens and I had all these different colored inks and stuff and it was all very ritualistic. Um, but it's kind of a hassle and it can be messy. Um, so I've graduated to, uh, Sharpie, uh, ballpoints, mm. Sharpie, uh, pens are just, they're, they're very smooth. They have like the smoothness of, of, I like smooth ink, like really smooth. I don't want to feel any pressure between me and the page. I want it to just be able to flow. Um, and I write in cursive. Um, so a lot of first first drafts I actually write by hand or I'll get the first paragraphs going by hand and then I'll start typing it up. Um, and as far as in the computer, I just use Word. Um, and I also write on my phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you said the fountain pen stuff was like was ritualistic. What do you mean by that? Um, like putting in the ink. Okay. Uh, I felt like, um, I mean, this is my like 16 year old mm -hmm. emo self that had never done drugs a day in her life. Uh, I, I pictured it as like loading up a heroin needle. Like that's how I thought of it. Hmm. Okay. And like the ink is my lifeblood that I'm putting on the page. I actually filmed myself loading my ink cartridge once. Wow. I <laughs> cool. Like close up of like the ink while the song from Pulp Fiction. Oh no, no, it's it's not the pumpkins. Like a Smashing Pumpkins song is like playing, and I'm like, I think like bullet with butterfly. I don't know some. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. It was just very. 
yeah, it was like the the ink was an extension of me, and the ink was like my blood, like my my uh, essence. So I would change the colors depending on my mood and stuff. That's an interesting thing. Then, I would you like go back then? Would you have a story or a poem in several different colors being written over the course of days, and sort of be able to like remind yourself then? what was going on as you're looking at it, like from time? Uh, yeah, there probably was a little bit of that. Um, I didn't write stories in high school though. I wrote poetry, did a lot of journaling, a lot of poetry and some screenplays. I adapted some, I, I yeah, there's a few screenplays I tried to write I, I or wrote. I did some movies, I did some movies in high school. So I wrote the screenplays for those and I did an adaptation of uh, Emily of New Moon, the Lucy Mom Montgomery book. Hmm. That book resonated with me, so I actually began an adaptation um, that I never finished. Um, and then I, I was, uh, when I was like 14, I was trying to, I was writing, working on a screenplay about the supposed love affair between Lewis Carroll and the real Alice. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. Is, is there... <laughs> I'm not, I don't know too much about Alice in Wonderland. Was there like a woman who was an inspiration for Alice then or? Yeah. Okay. A child. Yes. Oh, geez. Child. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as far as anybody can tell, nothing actually happened, uh, you know, while she was a child. Um, uh, Lewis Carroll had a thing for little girls. He, he, he preferred their company and, uh, he had a lot of girlfriends, and he liked taking pictures of them. Um, he was a photographer. He has some weirdly suggestive pictures of like Alice as like the little beggar girl, and like, um, and then when she was, and he he basically wrote Alice in Wonderland for her as a gift. Like he had no intention of publishing it or anything. It was just a gift for her. And then a friend suggested that he should publish it. So mm. there is a original handwritten, hand drawn with his own drawings version of it that was the gift for her and it's called Alice's Adventures Underground and then when she was a, a teenager he uh, he wanted to marry her um, and uh, it didn't work out because uh, he wasn't like rich enough I guess hmm. he asked her parents for her hand and uh, they denied it and then like a year later, they married her to a duke. Okay, because this is this is eighteen eighties, right? My my copy has like a eighteen sixties yeah. stuff like that. It's a late eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was like he was twenty. I think he was like twenty three or twenty two when he first met her, and she was like five. Huh. Yeah. So they became friends, mm -hmm. and like I said, he had a lot of girlfriends. He would he would meet them for tea and take them to the museum, take them on boat rides and tell them stories. Like, uh, yeah, he's kind of a weirdo. Yeah, it's kind of that's strange. Yeah. So writing that as a teenager, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I had kind of a Lolita complex for a while. 
I also really love Lolita by Nabokov. Mm-hmm. My favorite book when I was 16. Hmm. I, that's one of the, the few books my wife and I will periodically read to each other from whatever we're reading. And anytime I said more than like a sentence from Lolita, she's just like, nope, shut up. Don't want to hear it. Don't care. Don't know. One of the best books ever written, I think. I I really enjoyed it. I, I love that that intro paragraph is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. I I did a when I was in college and I was in a I was in a drama class. We had to pick a passage to do like a dramatic reading of, and uh, that's the one I picked as the opening paragraph of that. That uh, that sort of moves on into one of the things I have in my notes here about like especially in tragedy queens but definitely in in cartoons in the suicide forest there's lots of um like uh the way that sex is written is interesting to me and not like how like male writers write about sex um and that's just very interesting to me i wonder if that is just a thing in general that I'm not aware of because I've I one don't read a lot of contemporary stuff just because I'm I'm new to this world um and two just because you know I haven't read a lot of literary fiction and probably even less female literary fiction um but like a dude writing about sex is just like it's almost this ugly sort of passage that like um, but a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the sex scenes or, or sort of things written about in, in tragedy Queens feels different to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in what way? Um, well, let's see, because it, it is different. I'm definitely not like trying to make it into a monolith. Um, without him and him and him, there is no me was, was definitely an interesting thing. Um, more, more in general, outside of the book, I remember reading excerpts from, um, Marie Calloway's book, the, what purpose did I serve in your life? And, um, I don't remember anything specifically from tragedy Queens, but like it's at once like utilitarian, and pragmatic but also sad and and still beautiful and erotic kind of all rolled into one yeah and... so what do you think is do you think um women are just more emotionally involved in sex um i don't know about that um i mean maybe my my experience with sex is very 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 limited i've only ever had sex with my wife <laughs> and uh, that i'm i'm her only partner ever so like our like world is this sort of like enclosed thing like just between us um i feel like it probably has something to do with the emotionality of it but also power structures and mm using sex as a tool or or a means of gaining power of some sort or other Mm-hmm. yeah like in uh like i have that story in my collection called fist pump mm-hmm. where the character uh for whatever reason 
I didn't really stop to think much about her motivation. That was my second story I wrote. Um, she, for some reason, wants uh, she wants to get beat up, and uh, so she she uh, like gives this weird drug to this the fist pimp, you know, mm-hmm. as a in exchange for him and his guys to just like brutally like. You know, and it is sexual because there's like anal fisting um, <laughs> to just beat the crap out of her. And she's like, you know, so she gives them something so that they give her that. And, and then she's happy that she got that because that's what she wanted. I remember reading in, in a book I had to read for like an advanced English class in high school that one of it was... Um, how to read literature like a professor or something like that. And a lot of the things in it um, were useful at the time and now seem kind of obvious or silly or or um, reductive. But one of the chapters was everything is about sex and then the next chapter was except for sex. Um, yeah. And I feel like with a lot of the sort of indie lit by women, it's it's yes and rather than... Uh, one or the other mm-hmm. where it's this is definitely about sex the act of sex but also about all of the other things and then some yeah I mean I think something that and it's not just women that experience it but I think women experience it more than um, like straight men is there's always an element of danger with sex and the the element is a lot higher you can get pregnant, you can get raped a lot easier because, you know, just the way the body parts are made, mm-hmm. you know, the cock is made for insertion, like, we are made to be invaded. So, you know, um, uh, there's all these consequences, and there's all these fears, and uh, they're always kind of tied up with sex. And I, I think, like, I mean that that definitely plays in those power dynamics. So there's there's always there's always just a lot more at stake, um, because of just biological reasons. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and just thing, yeah. Like I don't know, men tend to be larger. Sex tends to happen with the man on top, like the the physical like positioning is is like one of control generally for the men um i wonder if part of it too has to do with just the act of like being a woman writing about sex um is like a radical act for some people or could be seen as a radical act by some people um and so like more thought is maybe just put into writing a sex scene uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I feel in general that um, male points of view and male desire has been well explored for centuries. And sure. I think it's just women haven't really had much of a chance for a variety of reasons to describe what how they are experiencing reality. So, like, you know, when I write about it or when I do anthologies and other women are writing about just the female experience in general, it's, uh, it probably is going to seem new and startling because, you know, female voices just have not been 
you know, there's been gatekeepers, male gatekeepers that have made sure that women don't get published. Um, of course, this was more true, like in the, you know, 1800s and before that, you know, in the 1900s, women, there's some women writers that actually, you know, started getting famous and even in the 1800s, but it was, it was an uphill battle. And, uh, even if they became popular, they were looked down on by male critics and stuff like that. They'd be like, oh, that's not real literature. You know, that's just fluff that other women like, you know, and um, like the, um, something that I found really interesting when I was doing research about fairy tales is that um, like there's there's like oral folk tales like that became like the fairy tales, but like the fairy tale as like a written genre um, was uh, primarily a female invention. Uh, women women focused more on fairy tales. They were writing fairy like Beauty and the Beast is written by a woman. That's a um, and and there's two versions of it and they're both written by women. Um, and uh, because men didn't take the fairy tale format seriously, they thought it was just stupid. So women focused more on it, um, and it became kind of more their territory until Perrault kind of took it uh and that's it, it sucks because like people just know about the brothers Grimm and parole and mm-hmm. like brothers Grimm didn't actually write any stories they just were collecting stories most of those stories told by women to children or to other women um these were stories that were passed around by women about like coming of age in a man's world and shit like that um but yeah, the fairy tale is kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a female creation a little bit. Was the initial intent for fairy tales to be um, told to children as cautionary tales, or was it something else? Um, I think that was part of it, but I think I think like the Brothers Grimm when they collected their stories, they their focus was that more. Um, uh, but uh, these stories, I, they were told to everybody. I mean, they were just kind of about the world itself. Mm. Um, like, for example, Alison, uh, uh, the Red Riding Hood story, the, the first oral tales of that were very different from what became the Brothers Grimm version and then what became the Perrault version. Um, it was a lot more brutal. And it, it was kind of intended for girls coming of age. And um, what what the new perils would be, like I was saying, sex is always tied in with danger for a female. Um, and uh, in the original narrative of it, um, it's very clear that the wolf. Well, also the wolf isn't a wolf; it's a werewolf, and uh, it's very clear that it's going to rape her. And um, she escapes her rapist by lying and saying she has to go pee because he has her like tied up. Like he has a, has her foot tied up and he makes her strip and get into bed with him. And she lies and says she has, actually she says she has to go to the like poop. I don't know, whatever. She has to go to the, um, <laughs> I think there's one version where she's like, I have to pee. And he's just like pee in bed. And she's like, no, I have to poop. Um, it was like very raunchy. Also, he, she eats her own grandmother, like not intentionally. Like the grandmother came first, and he like literally like cooked the grandmother and like put her blood in a vial and shit, and has like 
Red Riding Hood like drink the blood of her grandmother and eat her grandmother like literally without knowing it. Um, and uh, anyway, she manages to escape, but she doesn't. She does so without the help of any man. And then the brothers Grimm have it where she gets eaten and then she gets rescued by a hunter. Mm-hmm. She gets eaten. No, she just gets eaten. I think. Yeah, she just gets she gets eaten. So it's like a moral tale. Like, don't stray from the path. You know, listen to your mother and like, you know, don't fuck strangers. Basically. Um, yeah. Um, of course, why the fuck is her mother sending her into the woods that's full of rapist werewolves? Like, that's what I want to know. Uh, that is a good question. <laughs> yeah, what is she doing? Why can't she bring stuff? It's your mother, you know. Yeah. What you are... send your, like, prepubescent daughter into the woods full of horny, rapey werewolves. Like, it's almost like she wants her to get raped. It's really weird. Or at least to be tested. Yeah. It's like, that's your test. But these stories are metaphorical, obviously. They're not sure. literal. Huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I had been told that story as a child, it would definitely make me want to not do whatever it is yeah. <laughs> that story is. Um, yeah. And Perrault kind of made it even more, like, moralizing. And he's the one that actually introduced the red cap, I believe, um, which I think is symbolizes menstruation. I suppose it would. Oh, man, I heard myself. Um, that reminds me way back in the day, uh, back in 2008, there was a story published on the Podcastle podcast, which is, uh, fantasy fiction, short fiction, um, called Red Riding Hood's Child, which is a twist on it, but it's Red Riding Hood is a boy and the wolf ends up fucking him. Um, I remember that. So what? That was eleven years ago. So I was fifteen. I remember that being a very shocking thing to to hear when I was fifteen. It's by N. K. Jameson. I'm not familiar with the name. Um, but your Planet Mermaid definitely kind of takes this a turn back toward the very dark, violent uh, fairy tale thing. Yeah, I it it bothered me when I did this research and I found out how, how much fairy tale has been whitewashed. You know, forget about Disney. I mean, the brothers Grimm whitewashed them. Then Perrault did another whitewashing and then Disney did like the final whitewashing. And it was just, it basically declawed them and no longer made them stories about female empowerment and it, but about female, why females should submit to male power. I mean, that's kind of the vibe I got. Mm, yeah I'm too far removed from having seen any of them but I can I can see that being the case what's fucked up about the Little Mermaid is like actually the Little Mermaid is um that's Hans Christian Andersen mm-hmm. it's so messed up the deal she has to make cause it's like you can get your legs you'll basically become a woman cause mermaids don't have legs mm-hmm. and what's between your legs like so get your legs be a woman walk among men but the only way you can get your legs 
is if I take your voice. Which to me seems like a really weird metaphor about the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, little girls watch the Disney movies and all they see is like, oh, I want to be a princess. Do you feel like lately they've been doing a better job or does it seem like an ideological checklist sort of thing? Like no, I've, I've seen big changes. I mean, I saw, um, I was very impressed with um, the live action Maleficent with Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. I, I found it very inspiring and empowering and kind of taken back. Uh, the power and uh, showing just what it it shows a really negative version of like a man's world like just being so war driven and just solving everything with violence and then it shows a fairy world in contrast and it shows that Maleficent is not actually bad she's just like you know she's been uh, turned away you know um so it, it really gave an interesting perspective of it. It kind of tripped me out because um, when I was little, when I was like three, um, I, I was really obsessed with Disney and Disney movies. And uh, um, my parents got me these uh, like Disney books on tape and um, I would listen to them obsessively. And I started um, my dad recorded me, um, retelling some of the stories. Um, and I did, I did one for, I did one for Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, I think. And, um, what's really weird is like the Sleeping Beauty one, like I told it straight, like literally just repeating the book on tape. Um, and then I, uh, I decided to just like switch everything around. So make it backwards. So like everything that was good was bad. Everything that was bad was good. Um, and I had like, uh, like Sleeping Beauty's father was a devil and her mother was a witch and Maleficent was actually good. And uh, it's like trying to seduce like Prince Philip and stuff. It was really weird. That sounds like a like a thing that kids do that is not encouraged enough. I feel I feel like the the sort of like role reversal thing should should be encouraged. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I basically do the same things with this collect with the cartoons collection mm-hmm. with a lot of the stories. I was m- mashing fairy tales together like like Eva of Oz, the one you brought up before, mm-hmm. uh, that's a combination of that's um, that's Princess Languidier from Ozma of Oz. Um, she's this princess that uh, switches her heads. She has a bunch of heads she collects and she switches them around. Um, she's like a total narcissist. Um, if people watch the movie, it's Return to Oz, um, where she, I think she makes an appearance in that. So it's Princess Languidier mixed with like Eva Braun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Wicked Queen in Snow White, like all as one character, and Hitler is her magic mirror. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- that 
is is very much the sort of like quintessential bizarro thing to me it's like i mean you were saying it before like smashing all these things together yeah that that don't seem like they should go together but fit within the framework that's created um the other story i wanted to to bring up is um cosmic bruja is that how you say it yeah okay my spanish pronunciations are not good i have i have a friend from mexico at one of my jobs and i'm always asking him how to pronounce things and um but because of that um this the line there's a passage in there that talks about like i don't know how when i was in mexico i didn't feel like i was from mexico until i was and then i left mexico and i felt like i didn't belong here um that's a a very sad sort of feeling but uh as a person who's lived in the same state within the same like 50 mile radius his entire life it's it's a feeling i do sort of get right like living in michigan well you're living in michigan yeah i mean i just feel like it's <laughs> here <laughs> yeah for sure I, I like i just feel like it's here but then i'll go you know, when I was in middle school and, and involved with religious stuff, I would go on mission trips to like West Virginia and it would just feel like it would feel like a foreign country. And it's West Virginia. It's not anywhere crazy. But, you know, you yeah. go to a poor part of another state that's, you know, less than a 12 hour drive away. And it's just so completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you talk about that piece a little bit? Because that's another one that sort of stood out to me is. Um, so that piece, um, it's, uh, nonfiction. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's partly about my first acid trip. Um, uh, and it's also about this very visionary dream I had following that acid trip. I, I don't remember how long after, I don't remember if it was a few months or what. Um, I had several very, very vivid dreams after that. So it's kind of the two mashed together um, and trying to find the meaning of like what it, what it all meant. Like why, why did I get so disoriented when I was high? Why did I lose my sense of self? And um, why do I keep having these weird flying dreams where I'll be like, oh, cool, I'm flying. And then I'll just get so, like, tripped out that I'm flying that it'll either end or or it'll turn into a nightmare. Like, And even still now, I, like, I've had other flying dreams. I had a flying dream, like, I don't remember when it was. It was, like, a year or two ago. I dreamt that I was actually flying in my backyard in our house in Mexico, and I was naked, and I was flying just, like, a very small periphery just a little bit and my mother was like having a fit she was yelling at me she's like oh no the neighbors are gonna see you and um <laughs> and I was like you're gonna make me fall like you're gonna make me lose my focus I'm gonna fall like so in that dream my mother was the one like messing up my mojo my flying mojo um so there's always something I can never just enjoy 
enjoy flying and and I've had enough of these dreams to where I do feel like it's something psychological with me I don't know if it has to do with my bipolar and mania or if it has to do with um, my troubles with focus or if it's a matter of like me not having enough faith to keep going when I'm doing something um, I don't know. It, so it's it's kind of me writing about trying to figure out all that. And I, I just had this very intense encounter in a dream with this woman that was like a witch. Uh, like she was had blue robes. Like I've had dreams. Obviously, you're always dreaming about other people. But this was like there's some occasions where I'll dream about somebody and they look into my eyes and I look into their eyes and I just I don't recognize them like they're not they're not just a projection of my brain. There's somebody, there's some entity. And that's how I felt looking at her. And she just was so much her own thing. And she was like this quiet guide. Um, and she was like, you want to know how to fly? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, okay. And so she like hooked me her arms and she flew and I was flying with her. Like I was flying like this and she had me like hooked kind of like somebody teaching you to like doggy paddle or something like, um, and we were flying and I was seeing all this beautiful stuff and then the, that feeling came over me and I started to freak out and panic and then she just like laughed this insane cackling laugh that scared the fucking shit out of me and and uh, I was starting to just plummet just into darkness it was that same feeling that I had in my acid trip when everything just kind of went black and I just I was like I don't know what anything is I'm plunging into chaos and um she was like, she said something like, you know, like, you know, you already know, or like, just focus, like, you can see this, like, some, something like that. And, and through the chaos, I was able to pull my brain back into myself in this lucid dream. And I was able to regain my vision of the beautiful vistas we were flying over. So it was like, the one moment in those dreams where like, I actually had somebody there helping me and making sure that I didn't do the same stupid shit I do every time. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Do you do you have lots of lucid dreams, or are they rare enough that that's why it's so uh, stand out? Um, they don't happen that often anymore. They, I noticed that during times of my life where I'm doing a lot of like meditating and stuff like that, I'll have them more. And I unfortunately have not been, I really should get back to meditating. And that's something I'm always saying. Mm -hmm. But um, there was a period of time in my early 20s, uh, you know, um, after I did acid, basically several years where I was in a uh, extremely heightened state for several years um, where I was seeing visions and I was having all kinds of crazy dreams and I just I felt like I was like I really felt like I was like transcending whatever it was I was before um, unfortunately nothing like a little bit changed but like a lot of stuff kind of just fades like you can be having like an awesome mystical experience drug or not drug induced and you think I will never go back 
to not seeing, you know, I see now, I see, like, I see the connectedness of everything. It all makes sense. Like I can see the energies ex being exchanged. I can see I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of the universe. Like, um, but eventually you'll just kind of settle back into your mundane reality where you're just, you wake up annoyed. You're like, Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. This is annoying. That's annoying. I'm just going to dwell on stupid shit and not like, you know, be my best self. Like it's, it takes so much hard labor to just to, to keep yourself high. You can't, it's very hard, especially if you have mood disorders. Um, it's, if you have depression and bipolar and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's literally impossible to stay, you know, up because that's just not the way your, your emotions go. You're going to be going up and down and the best you can do is just learn to like not go as low. And when you're getting high to like not get too carried away with the mania, cause then you're going to pay for it the next week with horrible depression. Um, so, um, but like, I don't know, I've learned some really cool lessons in dreams and I have tried to use them to help me grow as a person like that one, for example, mm -hmm. like I think about, I don't think about it a lot, but I do think about it. It's like just one of those things that's always there and I, I it stays there. It kind of nags at me like a particle of dust inside a oyster like making that pearl um, of wisdom. It's just one of those little things that I'm like, wait, but was she real? Like, what was, what was that? Like, was she an act? Like, it seemed real, but like, I don't know. Like the brain makes up all kinds of crazy shit. Like we can make ourselves see and believe and feel anything. Like just cause you're feeling something doesn't mean it's real. And I've learned that with, you know, having bipolar, like, just because I feel like everything has gone to shit, and I'm fucked, or like, everybody definitely hates me, like, that's not necessarily accurate. <clears throat> so, but I do wonder, you know, and I have been actually thinking lately that I should try to, like, see if I can connect with some spirit guides, because uh, if they're there, and they're willing to help me, it's really stupid of me to not take advantage of that. For sure. I, I agree. What what kind of meditation were you doing? Were you doing like guided stuff or just mindfulness, like Zazen? Uh, the meditations I've done in the past um, usually involve uh, visualization and chakra, um, chakra meditations to get my chakras open. Mm -hmm. Okay. My my really only experience with meditation has been just like straight Zen Buddhism, Zazen, just sit, yeah. be the sitting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to do more simple meditation, just like breathing, the breath, like follow the breath and that stuff like that. You know, it might feel boring and like nothing's really happening, but you have to build a foundation on something. I think one of the mistakes I made in my early 20s when I got really into witchcraft and mystical stuff is... I had no patience and I just wanted to get on the fast track. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wanted the spiritual speed pass to get me on the fast lane of the spiritual highway, which I think a lot of people do. I mean, that's why people get into Scientology and shit like that. They're yeah. like, Oh, this yeah. is the fast lane. Okay. Um, and the thing is like, if you do that, like you can seriously injure yourself or cause yourself permanent psychic damage. 
and it's extremely dangerous and I have done things to myself that have taken years to fix. So, uh, yeah, it's not to be done lightly. Even if you're doing it without any drugs or anything, like if you like, like a simple thing, like if you really focus a lot on like getting all your chakras open and spinning and you know, all your, everything opened up and you don't properly protect your aura, um, your personality, your mind can schism. You can literally make yourself, not literally, but almost schizoid, especially if you have um, disassociative tendencies, you can actually exacerbate your mental illness and open yourself up uh, on the astral and the physical plane to other people just getting inside in bad ways. Um, and you can't, you start to get really confused about like, where's the difference between you, your feelings and other people's and your thoughts and other people's. And, um, it can get very confusing and your sense of self can erode. So it, it can actually cause the same amount of damage as say, like men somebody mentally abusing you. Like you're literally like pushing your, your own limits of your, your sanity. Um, so it's actually better to just take it as slow as possible because if you go fast you can cause yourself damage also acid acid can fuck up your brain like I, I think that first acid trip even though it gave me amazing visionary dreams afterwards and the experience itself like really opened me up um, I don't think I was mentally prepared for it and um, I feel like it really scrambled my brain and it took years to get get my bearings again Yeah, I can I can see that being a problem if you don't have like a sort of framework for how like is the self real and what is it and then kind of like going from there like a framework of like how am I going to see the structure of everything and then yeah. you 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 go about dabbling in the sort of things that would help realize that framework but without the framework, you're just sort of, I mean, it's like throwing bricks just, you know, instead of building a house, you're just throwing bricks into a field and seeing yeah. what happens. Or just, you know, the, with the nature of reality itself, you know, I mm -hmm. think um, there is a reason we are not all walking around at our highest peak of enlightenment. Um, we would not be able to function for the most part. Um, we, our brain shuts out most information so that we can function, so that we can focus. So we're not just looking at the vast expanse of all existence. And, you know, we'd be like the scream, basically, like Edward Munch. Mm -hmm. Like that's, or, or like a love, a character in a Lovecraft story. Like that's, um, you know, you gaze into the abyss and, you start to like just become the abyss. Um, so it's, it's just, there's a lot of information and there's a reason our mind shuts it out. It's, it's for our own protection. It's so that we can function and do simple daily tasks and take care of ourselves and not just sit there, you know, tripping out about existence. Like we wouldn't get anything done. So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. My goal, my goal, like, 
eventually became like, I just want to be, I want to be, uh, I do want to feel spiritually connected, but I also want to make sure I'm grounded and I don't want to sacrifice one for the other and the groundedness has to come first. So if I don't have it in me to be feeling all mystical and, and stuff and, and pushing my boundaries with that, um, but I am like functioning in the real world, that's good enough for me. Because once you start neglecting your body, um, that everything else falls apart. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of being enlightened if you can't do anything with it? You know, I can dig it. Um, Mentioning that that story is nonfiction, do you mention it in the book anywhere? No. Or is it, it's just placed in there? Are there any other ones that are nonfiction in there? Yeah. Okay. The heroin story. Okay. The, uh, the one with the girl in the guy's basement? What's that called? Mm-hmm. Oh, Last Dance with Heroin. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. Um, That's there's one there's one uh embellished fact uh for dramatic effect but most of it is is uh literally exactly as it happened hmm. that's an interesting thing to put nonfiction and fiction together in the same package um when i was in college i took a class that part of what we were talking about were short story and poetry collections and how like choosing what to put in there and the order and, and everything is like very, very important. Uh, which I think you capitalize on in tragedy Queens with the idea that it's a mixtape. Um, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it really matters as long as it's entertaining. I, I don't really, I don't care if people, realize that I don't they don't need to know that it's nonfiction you know sure but it's funny when I do tell them and they're surprised mm-hmm sure but, okay yeah well I can dig that um that flew by so I'm gonna give you the last word if you have any calls to action special things you want to pimp a manifesto you want to read real quick uh, before we get into the reading. Now is um, the time. Um, I mean, uh, mainly I would like people to check out Clash Books. Um, you can see what books we have on ClashBooks.com. You don't have to buy them on there. They're all on Amazon, the ones that are out. Um, there's ones that are only on there right now because they're pre-orders. So, um, But we have a, a bunch coming if people are going to AWP in Portland we're going to be there. We're going to have books. We're going to have a fuck ton of writers. We're doing a reading um, that Friday at the sandwich shop. The events page is on Facebook. Um, uh, I also have a podcast of my own. Um, it's called Get Lit with Lisa. And it's on Podbean and uh, iTunes. And... Uh, yeah, people should get Tragedy Queens, and I do have a, uh, so my poetry book is is uh, coming out 
So that's up for pre-order on the Clash Book site. And it's called Trash Panda. And it's just like these um, weird emo poems that are seem like they're bad poetry, but they're actually... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they're actually good poetry. What's the release date on that? Um, you know, we've been trying to figure that out. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking around May. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, might might be sooner. I don't know. Probably May. May like May first. Well, if people pre-order it, then they won't have to worry about it. Yeah. We'll get it yeah. when they get it. Yeah, we're we're actually right about to upload the the full rap. I just got the full rap. Uh, it's so cool because my brother did the cover, um, and uh, so yeah, that will be. So I'll send out signed copies and stuff of that. And I'm really excited. It's my first poetry collection. Like it's crazy. I've written poetry since I was a teenager, and I just I've always been really shy about sharing it, and uh, finally have the confidence to to share it. So I hope people enjoy it. And uh, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Lisa Cantorell. And Clash is on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. <clears throat> so we, we have a lot of exciting books coming out. It's really exciting. So there's definitely, if I'm not your cup of tea, like somebody that we're publishing will be. I'm going to read Marilyn of Wonderland. It's um, it's inspired by Marilyn Monroe, who I am uh, low-key obsessed with. And uh, my time in New York, which was sadly brief, I was only there for like six months, but it was a very life-changing time in my life where I was listening to a lot of Lana Del Rey and like had found my true love and was like really finding myself and was kind of starting to deal with all my, all my shit. Um, so I, it's a reimagining. And like I talked in the podcast, I'm really into Alice in Wonderland too. Um, and that was a big influence on me and inspired me a lot. Um, I kind of combined the two. So it's Marilyn in Wonderland. Um, and it's inspired by the, um, the intro poem in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the poem he writes at the beginning um, about like, like still she haunts me phantom wise, Alice moving under the skies, never seen by waking eyes might be at the beginning of through the looking glass, but um, yeah. So this poem is inspired by Marilyn and Alice in Wonderland and like just being in New York and thinking about Marilyn, uh, her time in New York and what that was like. So kind of like meeting meeting with the ghost of her, seeing her everywhere. All right. Marilyn in Wonderland. Don't look in the mirror. Don't look because you will see. Marilyn through the looking glass. Her twin brains glittering and glitter and digest the celluloid dream. The forest is thick for those who wander. Lost and found, crumbling underground. Where does the rabbit hole end? I wander through the streets of New York City. I see my reflection in the shop windows, half expecting to see Marilyn looking back at me. Her body might be in the Westwood Cemetery, but her heart is in NYC. In NYC, she could finally disappear, 
In NYC, she sought refuge from the swarm. The camera eyes that stripped her bare. You cannot x-ray a soul. Skeleton face, calavera of love. I look for Marilyn in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. She's not there, but I find the urn of Peter Lorre, and I wonder why he couldn't afford a nicer gravestone. Marilyn tangled in Egyptian cotton sheets, wound up in her telephone cord. A Hollywood mummy, preserved for all eternity. Still she haunts me, phantom-wise, Marilyn moving under the skies, never seen by waking eyes. She's not in the dirty New York snow, caked to the curb. She's not in the radiator that groans like a mechanical beast from the depth bowels of Mordor. She found her voice in the actor's studio, a bookworm devouring Ulysses. In madness she walks through mirrors far and wide. She died in beauty like the night. A psychic in Greenwich Village tells me that my aura is white, but I don't believe her because my shadows eat up all the light. Dark twin devouring me, dark pairings lost at sea. I hear her laughter bubbling off the shore. I find Marilyn in Key West, in front of the Tropicana, her smile frozen in plaster, blowing her skirts to Cuba. (laughs) 